to the Man of God Network, a podcast ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. This is the voice of the narrated Puritan. Now in the 37th year of audiobook and sermon narration ministry, that can be found at puritanaudiobook.com or on Sermon Audio on a search for the narrated Puritan. About a year ago now, I did a podcast for the seminary on James Manning, who was the first president of Brown University, which used to be called Rhode Island College, which of all of the universities that were founded at the beginning of this nation, this was the one that was more particularly a Baptist university. This week, we're going to look at Jonathan Maxey. The Reverend Jonathan Maxey was born in Attleboro, Massachusetts, September of 1768. His earliest ancestor, of whom any account has been obtained, was his great-grandfather, Alexander Maxey, who came from Gloucester, Massachusetts, and settled in Attleboro about 1721. His grandfather, Josiah Maxey, who died in 1772, was for many years a member of the colonial legislature of Massachusetts, and throughout a long life enjoyed the esteem and confidence of the community. Dr. Maxey was the eldest son of Levi and Ruth Maxey, whose maiden name was Newell, the daughter of Jacob Newell. His mother was a woman of strong mind and devoted piety, and beautifully exemplified the practical influence of the Christian religion by the uniform consistency which marked the whole tenor of her life. Upon her devolved the delightful duty of implanting in the mind of her son those seeds of truth and righteousness which should in after years bud and blossom in the usefulness. She had the happiness to see her son eminent for literature and successively elevated to the presidency of three colleges. This excellent woman died in 1815, aged 72, having been a worthy member of the First Baptist Church in Attleboro 52 years. His father was one of the most respectable inhabitants of the town in which he lived. He was a man of sound understanding and occasionally amused himself in writing verses. Jonathan Maxey, the subject of the following narrative, gave proofs of extraordinary talent and maturity of intellect at an early age. Often when a boy, he was wont to give his companions in the neighborhood specimens of his extemporaneous oratory, which would have done credit to riper years. The proofs of genius and devotion, the study which young Maxie had thus early evinced, seemed to indicate to his parents the propriety and expediency of giving him a liberal education. He was placed, therefore, preparatory for admission to college in the academy at Renton, Massachusetts, over which the Reverend William Williams presided with distinguished ability. Of this eminent instructor, he was accustomed to speak in terms of high respect and was much attached to him in after life. In 1783, at the age of 15, he entered Brown University. While an undergraduate, his love of study, brilliant intellect, urbanity of manners, and correct deportment conciliated the high regard, both of his instructors and fellow students. His studies in college served to sharpen and invigorate his mental powers, and he soon became a distinguished as accomplished scholar. His genius was remarkable for its versatility, and to whatever branch of knowledge he applied himself, he was sure to excel as a writer. His compositions were recommended as models to his classmates. His productions were eminent for delicacy of taste and his conceptions were embodied in language of the most classic purity. Thus early were laid the foundations of his future eminence. 
He graduated in 1787 with the highest honors of his class, on which occasion he delivered a poem on the prospects of America and a valedictory oration. Immediately afterwards, a vacancy in a tutorship occurred, and such were the qualifications of young Maxey, though yet a minor, that he was appointed to fill it. This coincidence imparted a new impulse to the noble aspirings of his unfolding powers. During four years, he discharged the duties of this office with such ability and wisdom as to secure to himself the popularity and respect of the students, the faculty, and the corporation of the university. About this time, he became the subject of religious impressions and joined the First Baptist Church in Providence and under the pastoral care of the Reverend James Manning. He was licensed to preach by that church April 1st, 1790, and soon after invited to supply their pulpit for several months, Dr. Manning having resigned his pastoral office. In this new and important station, he shone with the greatest brilliancy. Possessing an active, vigorous, and comprehensive mind, his faculties were continually improving by diligence and application. He soon attained a high reputation as a preacher, and such was the opinion that church entertained of his talents and piety, that in the following year he was invited to take the pastoral charge. After mature deliberation, he resigned his tutorship and accepted that important and respectable station. Dr. Maxey was ordained as pastor of the First Baptist Church in Providence, Rhode Island, September 8, 1791. Reverend Samuel Stillman of Boston, Massachusetts, preached the ordination sermon. On the same day that he was ordained, he was appointed by the corporation of the college, Professor of Divinity. He was also at the same time elected a trustee of the college. Maxey entered upon the discharge of his ministerial duties with earnestness and a deep sense of his responsibility. His sermons were prepared with great care and accuracy and delivered in a manner so chaste, dignified, and impressive that they were always heard with profound attention and delight. In his pulpit addresses and pastoral visitations, he delighted in administering balm to the sorrowful and in teaching the desponding where to look for consolation. Mr. Maxey was advancing to the acme of fame and pulpit oratory when another more extensive field of usefulness was open to him. President Manning, on the Sabbath morning of July 24, 1791, was seized with an apoplectic fit and expired on the ensuing Friday. The corporation of the college did not long deliberate as to his successor. At the annual commencement the next year, Mr. Maxey was unanimously elected president of the college and resigned the pastorship of the church September 8, 1792, on the same day that he was placed in the presidential chair. For this arduous and honorable station, he was preeminently qualified. He entered immediately upon the discharge of his official duties and gave to them all his energies. Here his popular career commenced under the most favorable auspices. At the commencement succeeding his inauguration, the college was illuminated and a transparency was placed in the attic story displaying his name with president, 24 years old. The university over which he presided with distinguished honor to himself and benefit to the public, flourished under his administration, and his fame was extended over every section of the Union. The splendor of his genius and his brilliant talents as an orator and a divine were seen and admired by all. 
between the president and his associates in office, there was an intercourse of mind and feeling the most harmonious and delightful. He had nothing of that dictatorial, imperious, and overbearing spirit which persons who are elevated to power are too apt to assume. He endeared himself to the students by his courteous and conciliatory manners and his paternal solicitude for their welfare, while his various and exact knowledge, sound judgment, refined taste, and impressive eloquence commanded their respect and supported his authority. The magnanimity in the conscience and marked in its administration by kindness, frankness, and dignity. He did not attempt to support his authority, as is sometimes done, by distance, austerity, and menace. But his pupils were addressed and treated as young gentlemen. He well knew human nature, and especially the character of young men, and hence his appeals were made to the understanding, the magnanimity, and the conscience of his pupils. During his presidency of Brown University, Dr. Maxey published nine sermons, four addresses to graduates, and three orations. They are all written with great beauty and felicity of diction, and exhibit vast attainments in a mind of the first order. Their number and variety, considering his duties as president and his numerous avocations, evince his industry in the extent of his capacity. President Maxey's reputation was now established as one of the first scholars and divines in the United States. And in 1801, when only 33 years of age, the honorary degree of Doctor of Divinity was conferred on him by Harvard University. In the language of Dr. Samuel Johnson, academical honors would have more value if they were always bestowed with equal judgment. As a pulpit orator, Dr. Maxey, during his presidency of Brown University, was powerful and fascinating, and wherever he preached, a place of worship was crowded. As Dr. Maxey's celebrity as a teacher and an eloquent divine became known and appreciated, he was invited to more eligible positions in distant parts of the country. In 1802, after the death of the Reverend Jonathan Edwards, Jr., president of Union College at Schenectady, New York, Dr. Maxey was elected to the presidency of that institution. Here he officiated with distinguished reputation until 1804 when he was called to another sphere of action. And that year, upon the establishment of the South Carolina College at Columbia, South Carolina, he received the unsolicited appointment of president of that college, he accepted of the presidency of the South Carolina College and entered upon his official duties with a fond anticipation of finding a clime more congenial to his delicate constitution. He was now in the zenith of his reputation, his brilliant and attractive talents, the variety and extent of his erudition, and his agreeable and refined manner soon gained him the esteem of all classes of society. In his arduous and honorable station he labored and shone for sixteen years. His eminent talents for instruction and discipline were now called into full exercise. The college was now in its infancy, and he devoted himself to its interests with great fidelity. He continued to preside over the South Carolina College till his death. Under his popular government, that institution attained a high rank and reputation among the colleges in the United States. During a period of his presidency, he was often called to preach on public and extraordinary occasions. This contributed to his celebrity as a president and made him known and admired in every part of the state. 
The following extract of a letter from a gentleman residing in Columbia, South Carolina, to his friend in Charleston, South Carolina, exhibits the impressive effects of his eloquence and the high estimation in which he was held at the South. It was written but a few months before his death and was published in the Charleston City Gazette. It shows that while Dr. Maxey's knowledge was continually increasing, his mind had lost nothing of its original vigor. July 6th, 1819. Last Sunday we went to hear Dr. Maxey, it being the 4th of July. It was a discourse appropriate to that eventful period. I'd always been led to believe the doctor an eloquent and impressive preacher, but had no idea until now that he possessed such transcendent power. I never heard such a stream of eloquence. It flowed from his lips, even like the oil from Aaron's head. Every ear was delighted, every heart was elevated, every bosom throbbed with gratitude. Such appropriate metaphor, such exalted ideas of deity, and delivered with all the grace, the force, the elegance of a youthful orator. I was sometimes in pain lest this good old man should outdo himself and become exhausted, but as he advanced in his discourse he rose in animation till at length he reached heights the most sublime, and again descended with the same facility with which he soared. So far as I can judge, and your partiality I know will allow me to be no mean critic, there was not heard the slightest deviation from the most correct enunciation and grammatical arrangement. All the powers of art seem subservient to its absolute control. In short, I never heard anything to compare with Dr. Maxey's sermon all the course of my life, and old as I am, I would now walk even twenty miles through the hottest sands to listen to such another discourse. I am persuaded I shall never hear such another in this life." This excellent man, erudite scholar, successful teacher, and eloquent divine, expired in peace and in full expectation of the blessedness of the righteous June 4, 1820, age 52 years. The death of an individual so admired and revered as President Maxey spread a deep sorrow not only through his family and the college over which he had so long presided, but through the state and extensively through the Union. Science, virtue, and religion mourned over the loss of one of their most gifted and illustrious sons. A brilliant luminary which had long shed its bright and pure radiance over our country was extinguished. His funeral was publicly solemnized, and his remains were borne to the silent house appointed for all the living. Upon the shoulders of his disconsolate pupils, by whom this great and good man was so affectionately beloved and revered, Dr. Maxey, it is believed, was appointed to the office of President the youngest, and officiated the longest in proportion to his years of any person in the United States. He was connected with some college either as a student or an officer, nearly 38 out of the 52 years of his life. As a scholar, Dr. Maxey was one of the most learned men which our country has produced. Criticism, metaphysics, politics, morals, and theology all occupied his attention. His stores of knowledge were immense, and he had at all times a command over them. 
Like the celebrated Robert Hall, he appears to have early imbibed a predilection for the abstruse inquiries of metaphysical studies and have thoroughly understood the principles of the various systems of philosophy. To this circumstance is probably owing the clearness, precision, and facility with which he could separate truth from error and which enable him to wield the powers of argumentation with so much success. He possessed in a very extraordinary degree the power of mental abstraction, and few persons could pursue a train of thought to equal extent without the aid of writing or retain their conceptions with a firmer grasp. Although the bias of his mind gave him a peculiar interest in the recondite studies of metaphysics, yet he was equally acquainted with the elegant and profound parts of science, and that not superficially, but thoroughly. He cultivated with enthusiasm classical literature, the Bell's letters, and the fine arts. He studied eloquence critically himself and took great interest in the oratorical instructions of his pupils. Such was the promptitude and compass of his knowledge that it seemed as if every subject that was incidentally introduced was the one which he had been last occupied in investigating and the one in which he was most minutely and extensively skilled. As an instructor, he possessed unusual ability. His influence over his peoples was composed of all that genius, talent, experience, and exalted reputation could inspire. In his official station, he was conciliating and treated them with the kindness of a father. He used every exertion to enlighten their minds and to instill into them the principles of virtue and piety. He delighted to assist and encourage those of his pupils who applied to him for patronage or advice. He entered into their concerns with the most lively interest, and with pleasure imparted to them the lights of his experience and wisdom, the dignity and refinement of his manners, and his superior colloquial powers were greatly auxiliary in the introduction and discipline of the colleges over which he presided. He possessed a happy faculty of accommodating his instructions to the abilities and attainments of his pupils. His manner of imparting instruction was unrivaled. He saw every subject as a whole and presented it to his pupils in a most attractive form. His numerous pupils in every part of the Union speak of him in terms of the most fervid eulogy, and all unite in pronouncing him as a teacher, one of the most perfect models. They often acknowledge that they acquired a clear perception of the beauties or subtleties or errors of a writer by listening to his remarks upon them than even by a studious perusal of the work itself. But this power was never otherwise employed than as an instrument of good. Learning in the hands of Dr. Maxey was always the handmaid of virtue and the champion of morals. While he expanded the minds of his pupils and poured large draughts of knowledge from his own capacious stores, he ever steadily attended to their improvement as men, as citizens, and as Christians. And while he was a perfect master of the works of others and at all times capable of demolishing their theories and erecting others of his own, and therefore held, as it were, the minds of his pupils in his hands, he was ever careful to instill the purest orthodoxy in religion, the most perfect morality, and the most consummate patriotism in all the duties and relations of the citizen. As a preacher, Dr. Maxey's great excellence consisted in the admirable proportion and harmony of all of his powers. His conceptions were bold and striking, an expressive style pure, elegant, and sublime a profound and breathless silence, an intense
intense feeling and a delight amounted to rapture were the almost invariable attendants of his preaching. The impression made by his discourses was, undoubtedly, very much deepened by the peculiar unction and fervor with which they were delivered. His manner was emphatically his own. There was no labor display, nothing turgid or affected, but everything was easy, graceful, dignified, and natural. Though his voice was not very powerful, yet it was full and melodious, and his enunciation so distinct that every syllable he uttered in the largest assembly fell clearly on the ear of the most distant hearer. His general manner of delivery was rather mild than vehement, and rather solemn than impetuous, commencing in a moderate tone of voice, but becoming more animated and impassioned as he proceeded, he gradually influenced the hearts and feelings of his audience. In the performance of the devotional exercises of worship, Dr. Maxey greatly excelled. Prayer appeared to be his habitual element. His prayers were always appropriate, never failed to enkindle and elevate the devotions of the pious. His heart appeared to be melted and his lips to be touched as with a live coal from off the altar when he was engaged in a sacred and delightful duty. As an author, we think the intelligent reader who peruses this volume will accord to Dr. Maxey a very high rank. His writings are not numerous, but they are models of simplicity and beauty of sublimity and eloquence. And I'll end the story there, but somebody may ask, well, I've never heard of this Jonathan Maxey before. And to be honest with you, before yesterday, I did not either. I was looking at a book called The Theologies of the American Revivalists, and his name came up, and it piqued my interest. He is mentioned in the book The Annals of the American Pulpit by William Sprague. In the book before me, I looked up and found at Google books.google.com called The Literary Remains of the Reverend Jonathan Maxey, Second President of Brown University, Late President of Union College and of the South Carolina College, and his memoir was written by Romeo Elton in 1844. Other than that, I don't know a lot, but it has been kind of interesting to see somebody who has such oratorical skills forgotten in history, and a more interesting because he was in fact a Baptist. On my Kindle at this time is a book called Theologies of the American Revivalist from Whitfield to Finney, which I am studying for a podcast that I'm about to do on Saturday, A History of Revivals and the Defense of Revivals. This book here is by Robert W. Caldwell, and he says, Edwardian Revival Theology was found among the Baptists of the Second Great Awakening. Edwards' writings on spiritual theology revival and the will were prized among many Baptists of the late 18th century on both sides of the Atlantic, who, like the Northampton sage, sought to wed a strong predestinarian theology with a vigorous commitment to revival. Edwards's understanding of the will, particularly his distinction between the fallen will's natural ability and moral inability to choose Christ, found a zealous promoter in Andrew Fuller, who pushed his fellow particular Baptists in Britain to embrace a revivalist ethos. Fuller's work with his Edwardian affirmations was well known among American Baptists. Jonathan Maxey, 1768-1820, was an even more proximate source for Edwardian theology among American Baptists of the Second Great Awakening. Maxey's legacy resides not so much in his publications, he had only a few, but rather among the many pastors he helped train throughout his tenure as president of three colleges. 
together the three sources, Jonathan Edwards himself, Andrew Fuller, and Jonathan Maxey, ensured that Edwardian theology would be a significant theological option among American Baptists. <laughs>